0: I hope so too. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. And uh, I wanted to put together a talk that I thought um, people in general internal medicine and hopefully the subspecialties will find of interest. And so I think, um, I I hope this delivers and feel free to toss any questions you have uh, in the Q&A and I will answer them as best I can. I'll try to leave uh, some time open for questions. I want to start with this evidence-based medicine. You know, will it survive? Uh, the title was just provocatively titled so that I could entice you to come. Um, but recently, I've heard very interesting things, which are that you know, randomized trials—they're overrated. You can't have a randomized trial for every question in life. In fact, probably most of the things you did today, you don't have a randomized trial for. You woke up, you brushed your teeth, you got dressed. There are no randomized trials that support that. Not to mention, there are no ran- we didn't require a randomized trial to know that smoking was harmful. And we certainly don't require a randomized trial to know that wearing a parachute when you fall out of an airplane is beneficial. So, smoking, parachutes, all those day to day tasks, they don't require randomized trials. They're overrated. We don't need them for every question. And that's what I think increasingly people argue. So, you know, this is going to be drawing upon a paper that I wrote with uh, Logan Powell, who's uh, based out of Texas. You know, are those good counterexamples? So, let me walk you through this axis. This is how I think about healthcare. You know, healthcare is a unique type of intervention. It's an intervention that we're doing to make people feel better, be better off in some way. And you can imagine a spectrum of things that are broadly considered biomedicine uh, or broadly er, considered, you can imagine a spectrum of things that we do to people that may have an impact on their health. At one end of the spectrum, you can imagine the things we do to somebody that can hurt them the absolute most, really terrible things you could do to somebody that has a short-term mortality that's very high. At the other extreme, you can imagine things you do to somebody that provides them a tremendous benefit. They really do well from doing it. And then there's lots of things we do that have no help benefit, no net benefit. So let's walk through these, this axis. What's some of the worst things you could do to somebody? Again, I don't condone this. I strongly disagree. No one should do these things, but they are. You could shoot someone in a vital body part. You could shoot them point blank in the chest or shoot them in the head. You could hit them with a car, a runaway car. And both of these things, I will argue, are very bad things to do. And they have a very high short term mortality rate approaching 100% for depending on where the shot is delivered. Now, there has never been a randomized control trial to show shooting somebody in a vital body part is harmful. There's never been even a retrospective observational study. We don't need it with an effect size that large. We can just use the naked eye and we know that is not good to be avoided. What about the other end of the spectrum, the things you can do that help someone the most? If you threw them out of an airplane, it would be far better for you to give them a parachute than not. Although there are case reports of people surviving free fall, even from very high heights, those case reports are few and far between. And we also know that when you wear a parachute, it's not perfect, but it's pretty good. There's only uh, seven deaths per 10 million jumps as reported by the National Parachuting Association. So it has an absolute risk reduction on mortality of 99.999993 over the course of five to 10 minutes. And that's a tremendous, absolute risk reduction in all cause mortality. Very few things rival that. That's really good. I would also concede to you if you see me later today at a bus stop in San Francisco, and I'm looking at my phone, and I'm stepped a little too far forward, I'm standing in the street, and all of a sudden you pull me back and the bus whizzes by, I'm going to say, You saved my life. I shouldn't have been checking Twitter. That's what I'm going to say. And you would have saved my life. And for these extreme events, light switch kind of effect sizes. There is no randomized trial that you saved my life, but yet I believe, I know you saved my life. Human beings, our faculties, are well adapted for huge effect sizes. We can create the causality in our minds rather simply. So we do not need, I think, any type of study for these massive effect sizes. What about things in the middle? Smoking. Smoking, of course, is not good for you. It has an odds ratio of about 20 for lung cancer. Okay, but it also is harmful for other things. It has cardiovascular disease harms, bladder cancer, you know, many other harms from smoking. But nothing has an odds ratio of 20, odds ratio maybe 2, odds ratio 3, 4. They're harmful, but not nearly as profoundly harmful as smoking. Now, eating bacon. In the pooled meta-analytic estimate of eating bacon maybe once a week, I think you're going to get an odds ratio probably 1.7-ish. 1.7 it's harmful at least in the pooled analyses we have to date I'll, i'll give you some reasons to question those but you know it's not smoking it's not smoking at all and this is the zone that i think we get observational studies in we get observational studies on the bad side of the ledger because we are doing risk factor epidemiology we want to know for sure is eating bacon harmful or not is eating red meat harmful or not we also get some observational studies in the other direction, blueberries. Where is blueberries on the chart? I think blueberries is, oh, you can't see my mouse. Maybe you can't see my mouse. Blueberries is right over here. It's 0.997 in pooled meta-analytic estimate, you know, a pint of blueberries once a week. Potentially beneficial, but very, very modest. And so you can do observational studies to try to tease that out. And you can also do observational studies here for things you do to benefit someone with a modest to marginal effect size. This is over on this side of the axis. So we'll come back to that. I think there's, um, that, that, that most of what we do as doctors is right in this zone. We're in this side of it. We're on the right side of the axis in the modest marginal effect size business. That's the business we're in. It, it, it may sound like uh, I wish we were in this business of parachutes, but we're not. That's okay. Historically, we have, we're lucky. We live in a time where we're actually in this business and not back here. You know, it wasn't that long ago where we were trepanating, and we were lobotomizing, and we were bloodletting. And so for most of human history, we were actually probably, you know, all over the place. But now, finally, we're in the modest to marginal effect size business, and I think that's pretty good. I think that's pretty good. Now, we often forget, but when we are asking about evidence, when people say, you know, I want evidence for this practice, I want evidence for the antibiotics I'm giving, I want evidence for the early goal-directed therapy I'm pursuing in the ICU – You know, when we want evidence, we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to have evidence? And actually, evidence, I think, means four things, okay? One, reliable. You want to know that the study you're looking at is telling you the truth about the intervention. And you're not just looking at confounding that healthier people are more likely to have it done than not healthy people. You're not just looking at the lighter in your pocket causes lung cancer because it's associated with, of course, cigarettes. It's not the lighter itself that's doing that. You want something that's reliable. And randomization has a lot of virtues for reliability. It eliminates sort of measured and unmeasured confounding. It anchors time zero and it limits multiplicity, as I'll talk about. You also want something cheap. Let's be honest. We don't want to spend all this money to know the answer to questions. We want to find out the answer as cheaply as possible. And I'll talk about that. We want to do it fast. We don't want to waste our time. We can't afford to waste time. We need to know the answer tomorrow. So what's the fastest way we get there? And the last last part we forget about evidence is we want few. What do I mean by few? You want to minimize the number of people exposed to the ultimately inferior product as you figure out if it works. If you can figure out in 10 patients, it's better you do that than 100 because if you do 100 people randomize, you know, there's 40 more people who are getting the ineffective product. So we want to streamline randomization, we want to streamline sort of evidence generation. We'll talk about how this applies. Okay, so observational studies, are they reliable? You know, are they reliable? You know, if I read the observational study that said the blueberries, eating them once a week, you know, has a 20% reduction in colon cancer. Is that can I trust that? You know, and I think there's three key problems with observational studies. There's confounding, which, we t- which you know well, I think. I'll talk about it. There's time zero, which I don't think you know well, but is very important. Might even be the biggest problem. And there's multiple hypothesis testing. Let's run through the three. Time zero problem. You know, when you look retrospectively in the chart at UCSF, I'll give you a hypothetical retrospective study. If somebody comes into the hospital and they're hospitalized with acute myocardial infarction, do patients who receive metformin before discharge live longer than those who didn't receive metformin before discharge? And I guarantee you the answer will be yes, they do. That a patient who was hospitalized with a heart attack and got metformin is going to live longer than the one that didn't. But does that mean metformin improved outcomes? Let me replace metformin with a bag of Cheetos. If you look in a national data set and you ask yourself, do patients who eat a bag of Cheetos while hospitalized before discharge from MI have a better survival than those that don't? The answer is actually they probably do. Now why, and why how could that possibly be? Cheetos are do not improve cardiovascular ability as far as I can tell. Perhaps they even worsen it. Perhaps they even worsen it. But why is that the case? It's because when you look at something that happened after time zero, in this case, hypothetically imagine somebody being hospitalized. It says discharge here, but look at hospitalization. That's the time zero. The time until you get your metformin, the time until you get your Cheetos, that is guaranteed or immortal time. Only the group of people who you have defined as those who receive that product will have guaranteed one thing. They lived long enough to get it. If you were hospitalized and you died in the first three hours v arrest, you are not a candidate for ever getting metformin. You're not a candidate for ever eating the first meal. You're not a candidate for ever getting Cheetos. And that guarantee time is very difficult to disambiguate retrospectively. I think many people actually fail to do it. And it's baked into so many of our studies. You know, I hear people constantly telling me that um, you know eating, eating uh, tree nuts or, or, or taking a statin improves outcomes for people with metastatic cancer. I said, that's one heck of a statin. You know, if that statin's improving outcomes for metastatic cancer, that's one heck of a statin. Statin doesn't shrink tumors. How might statin be improving outcomes for metastatic cancer? Well, one thing is that statins have pleiotropic effects and they do all these things that they, you know, uh, they tell you some story. That's possible. The other possibility is that somebody who was diagnosed with pancreas cancer who died in the first four weeks, you know, before being discharged from the hospital, they never had the opportunity to be prescribed a statin. Or the doctor looked at the patient and the person who looked too frail they thought, this is crazy, why would we we give a statin? And so it's possible that guarantee time plays a role in those kinds of analyses as my colleague Miguel Hernan has shown. So this is the time zero, that when you look retrospectively, it's often hard to get things to line up. This is not true with randomization because the beauty of randomization is you drop the anchor. You drop the anchor at randomization. You know time zero, you've anchored it in both arms. It's the same. So that's one of the virtues of randomization. In fact, it might even be more of a virtue than confounding, multiple hypothesis testing. This was a provocative paper by Brian Nozick. I believe it was ultimately published in Science. And here's what he did and his research team. The research team took the results of many, many soccer games. And they specifically took whether or not a soccer player received a red card or a penalty card over many, many games. And they put in an Excel spreadsheet the name of the player and did they get a red card and when they were playing. And who was the game against, et cetera, et cetera. They also had a team of researchers code every player's skin tone between one to five from light skin to dark skinned. I don't approve of that. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have recommended that, but they did it. And they put it in the data set as well. Okay, so now they, they have the data set with skin tone and whether or not they got a penalty card and they give it to 20 plus research teams. The same exact data set. So this is important for their question. If you give the same data set, you know the data is coded the same. You ask each research team to tell you is there a bias among referees to give red cards more likely to dark-skinned players? And what they find is some analyses show, yes, statistically significant bias, and most analyses show you know something like a risk ratio of 1.2, 1.4. Some show up to three times as likely, but there's also a whole bunch of analyses that are not significant or find that it's equally likely, or, in fact, some even show maybe trending the other direction. Now, this is, of course, a very important... I mean, this is, of course, a question for which I think many of us have an idea what the, the, the answer would be. Either there is a bias, uh, which I think is entirely plausible, or there's less of a bias or a modest bias. Um, but I don't think many of us would think the bias would run the other direction. If you were to replicate the Nozick study with a study where views are very divergent, I suspect you'll get a quite a broad range of answers. Now here, they have the exact same data set. They're not coding skin tone. That's been done for them. They're not coding red card getting. That's been done for them. Same data set, just different analytic approaches, and look at the range of outcomes. And this shows you how much flexibility is in analytic plans. I think. Now many of us look at the New York Times Well column, and I can tell you what they're talking about this week. Is it blueberries? Is it green tea? You know, for a while COVID pushed it all out, but recently, recently there must have been a lull in COVID because I saw they were right back at it. They had dark chocolate up there. They had berries. You know, they had green tea. They had coffee. Is coffee good for you? Uh, I don't know. Is it? Uh, that's what I keep reading about for t- ten years. I've been reading nothing but coffee. Is it good for me? Here's how it feels like they get their news stories. Today's random medical news. They spin the wheel. Today we're going to talk about coffee can cause depression in twins. That's how they get it. And it feels this way to many bystanders, that they're always flip-flopping on these. They're always talking about the same topics. It's interesting to me that the berries, I very much love berries, but pitted, pitted fruit, peaches and plums, there's no love for peaches and plums. People, people are not interested. I don't know. I wonder why. I wonder why. I wonder why. Just berries. A few years ago, I was looking... I saw this article on Medscape. Vitamin E increases all-cause mortality. And I did what any rational person would do. I ran to my cupboard and I threw out all those sweet, sweet gel caps. But unfortunately, a week later, I saw this story. Vitamin E mortality study is challenged. A new study questions whether or not they really increase mortality. And so I did what I had to do, which was I went to Costco and I bought the biggest jar of vitamin E possibly imagine. Now, why does it news flip-flop? You know, I've been joking about green tea and coffee and alcohol, and, but it's true. They always have flip-flopping stories. And a few years ago, Chirag Patel and John Yonidis at Stanford, they actually kind of showed you why. And it has to do with the same thing that I showed you with those soccer players, that soccer study. When we do these studies, we have a data set. And that data set is typically something like the NHANES data set, where we have given a food frequency questionnaire to many people for many, many years. And it can tell you whether or not at the end of the study they've lived or died, and it has many other covariates in the data set. And what we do is we construct a model. Our model says, Can I predict someone's mortality? And then you have to say, Well, what might predict it? One, the vitamin E exposure. That's the thing I'm studying. Number two, maybe the age of the patient might predict it. Maybe the race, maybe the, the sex. These are sort of important confounders you might adjust for because maybe 80 year olds are much more likely to be taking vitamin E than 30 year olds like myself. So, you know, you adjust for known covariates that might have something to do with it. And then you're really asking, what is the independent association between vitamin E and mortality adjusting for these covariates? And this is an entirely possible research plan I'm showing you on the screen. I might do this study, you know? I might do that study. My colleague in Canada, they're going to add income. You know, they care about socioeconomics of health in Canada. We don't in this country, apparently. We've forgotten about it. But they care in Canada. And in Canada, they'll add income as an important modifier, and they'll run this analysis. And my colleague in North Carolina, she will do it a, dif- a different way because when she goes outside the hospital, she sees something that I don't see too often. Tobacco smoking. I see smoking. I don't see tobacco smoking too often these days. Tobacco smoking. She sees a lot of tobacco smoking. She's adjusting for smoking. I forgot about that, but she's adjusting for it. It's entirely plausible she would do this study. And my colleague at Harvard, he's a smarty pants. He knows how to get into the journal. So he adjusts for all these things. BMI, and hypertension, diabetes, cholesterol, alcohol consumption, education, family history, heart disease, any cancer, blah, 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 blah. He adjusts for so many things. And the truth is, if you look at a single research question like coffee and mortality or blueberries and, and something, you find that different investigators are adjusting for some or all of these covariates, maybe even more. So what's true with nutritional epidemiology? Many investigators have access to the data set, and many are probing the same questions. In fact, probably for something like coffee, 10 to the power of 6 times it's been probed and 10 to the power of 7 times or 8 times. 10 million times people have asked, is coffee associated with mortality in different data sets with different covariates? Every one of us is adjusting for covariates that make sense to us. What if you were to simulate the entire research community and not just look at the studies that end up being published, but all the studies that were possible, all the analyses that could have been run and might have been reported, but just weren't? And that's what they did. And they took that NHANES data set, they took 400 variables of interest, and they only looked at time to death. And they picked one at a time, vitamin D and beta carotene and lycopene and vitamin E and whatever you want, coffee. And they looked from that variable of interest to mortality and they adjusted for any one of these 13 most common things they adjust for in the literature. And every possible combination of them from two to all 13 to seven and every possible permutation. And I think once upon a time, we might have known how to do that on a calculator, something, something, you put some numbers in. But the answer is, of course, it's two to the power of the number of variables. It's about 8,000 models. So they're simulating 8,000 different research plans for every single nutrient exposure outcome. And they plot every eight of the 8,000 studies they get, they shoot it on a scatter plot. That's what you see here. This scatter plot is is a plot of all the possible studies you could read in the New York Times. New York Times, they're going to be busy for a long time to come because they got 8,000 possible studies to cover. They got plenty of fodder for the next 100 years. I'll be reading about coffee until the day I die. Probably sipping coffee because that's how I like to live my life. I'm not going to... You pay any credence to their studies because of this. This is a heat map. The hotter the map, the more studies show that outcome. One axis, we're plotting the hazard ratio, which is a dimensionless ratio of the instantaneous hazard, hazard rate in both arms, of course. It's dimensionless, of course. On the other axis, we're plotting negative log 10p value, which is a measure of significance. So the more extreme it is on one axis, the more likely it is to be significant, and the hazard ratios are all over the place, as you see. Now, what do you think the most common hazard ratio is where the heat of the map is the most common hazard ratio between a nutrient and mortality. What do you guess? I guess I don't know if you can. I don't know if you can guess. If you can guess, maybe put it in the chat. The most common vitamin D and beta carotene and blueberries and coffee. What is the most common analytic answer? Hazard ratio 0.7 means it's life saving, and 1.2 means it's killing you. What do you think the most common is? Ah, see something in the chat? 1.0. Eleanor is 100% correct. It's the most common is 1.0 that these things don't do anything, you know, that most of what we eat or drink our bodies are surprisingly resilient to and we can actually have very modest or no impact on our mortality, but you can definitely find a study that says vitamin D is good for you and you can definitely find one that says it's harmful if you look enough. And what the result is, the reason the New York Times is covering the extremes is every time somebody gets something in the middle, the boring middle, they don't take it any further. My um, staff staff scientist, she gets 1.0. She's not even going to tell me. And if I get 1.0, I'm going to tell you, don't write that up. Who are we going to send that to? If I get 1.5 and a conference interval doesn't cross one, now I'm saying, yeah, now we can talk. Now we can, maybe we'll write that up. You know? If I get 1.12, I say, now nah, I got a really good journal. Maybe a really good journal. If I get 1.4, then I say, okay, come on, it's too good to be true. Get out of here. We can't publish that, and they're not going to believe us. So the published literature is, a, is, is not the truth. It's really an opinion poll as to what scientists think is plausible when you have so many analytic plans run. And this is true for nutritional science. We have so many studies run. Um, this is another analysis they did. Of, uh, they took a dart and they threw it in a cookbook and they landed on all these random ingredients in the cookbook. And they asked, if you look up these ingredients, can you find studies that show they increase or lower the risk of cancer? And for most, for 80% of ingredients, you can find studies in both directions. And you know, are onions really anti-cancer and is beef really carcinogenic? Or is this merely a product of our beliefs that I believe beef is not so good and onions got to be good, you know? And so then the net result of the literature is it gives me that answer. But butter is all over the place and cheese is all over the place and eggs is all over the place. Of course, this is paid for by Big Egg. I mean, actually it might be. It might be. I don't know. Coffee, coffee. This is New York Times Tuesday and this is next week. We got them right here. So my conclusion for very popular questions, of which there are many people analyzing the data, of which there are, even if you had one data set, but we have many data sets, and we have many analytical plans, and many analytic plans are entirely plausible, you will always achieve every single answer you ever want for the end of human history. There were a number of questions that the COVID-19 pandemic raised, including the impact of many things, NPI, all these things, we will always get, for the next 15 years, both answers. Whatever answer you want, you will get, because you have so many investigators and so much analytical flexibility. You won't get, you won't get what the real answer is. I don't know what the real answer is for a lot of the questions. I, for nutrients, I do have a feeling what the real answer is, which is that the human body is probably remarkably able to tolerate a variety of healthy diets, and there probably are some core things about unhealthy diets, like processed food, too much food. Um, you know, and, and those sorts of things. But I think other than that, we probably over-proscribe nutritional advice. You know, those are my thoughts. Um, when it comes to medicine and what we do, the bias really goes one direction. It really goes one direction. Let me talk about this study. Uh, Rahul Banerjee, who just graduated as a fellow here, and I were privileged to write the editorial. We were, as they say, humbled to write the, humbled to write the editorial. Um, and this was a really interesting paper. The authors took one hundred and twenty medical recommendations for cancer practices that had randomized trials supporting them. So these are 120 things, either do it or don't do it, but we know a randomized study has been conducted on that topic. We know the answer. And for each of the 120 studies, they ran their own observational study using a national database. They actually use propensity weighting observational study, which is an analytic technique to gain comparability between the groups to minimize confounding. So I think it was, pro- it was actually kind of elegant. Here's what they found. First, let me show you the results of the observational studies that they ran. 120 questions, they're running this study. Does this surgery, device, radiation, pill help my cancer patient? Here's the answer. 55% of the time, winner. It does, it's saving lives. We're doing, we're doing good work. 45% of the time, no thanks. It doesn't work, doesn't save lives. But then they looked at the answer key. They checked that answer key, the randomized studies. What did they find? 40% of the time it was true improved outcomes if you were finding it beneficial. But 60% of the time it didn't. Actually the majority of the time when you thought the observational study said the new cancer's radiation helped the outcomes, you were wrong. The majority. You're only right the paucity of the time. But if you said it didn't work, actually two thirds of the times you were right, it didn't work. It's better to bet it doesn't work because it's more likely not to work. And then if you put this together, you know, you put this together, 60, uh, you know, one in three actually works. 63% don't work. But in the observational data, it looks different. Now why is that? Why does the real world, hashtag real world evidence, why is it more optimistic than randomization? And the answer is confounding by indication. That's confounding. What does confounding by indication mean? It means that there's another difference between the person I deployed the chemotherapy, that radiation, the surgery in. There's another difference besides giving the surgery to the person in whom I gave the surgery to. And that was, they look good in my eyeball. They look like they can take it. They look like they can handle that radiation. If they looked too sick or too vulnerable, then I felt like, you know, somebody's checking at the door here. Let me let them in. No, it's okay. You can come use the office. I'm just giving the the great rounds. If they looked... Never mind that. (laughs) If they looked like they're healthy enough to take a cancer therapy, and we all know cancer therapies, they're not easy to take, and the doctor's not going to do it to somebody who's very, very sick, spending all their time in the bed, they're going to do it to somebody on the margin who looks a little bit better. And there's no variable in the EMR and EPIC that says, you know, I look like I can handle that. And that's confounding that is not coded. It's an unmeasured confounding. And that's why, of course, observational data on cancer, at least, is much more likely to be optimistic than randomized studies. So I talked about reliability. I think in my opinion, and there's many, many other studies that have looked at this, the reliability if you're trying to base clinical decisions on non-randomized studies, you should take it with a grain of salt. If anything, you're more likely to be optimistic, I think. You're less likely to be you're more likely to be optimistic, and for some questions, you know, you're really just throwing darts. I mean, you really have almost no idea whether or not that conclusion, that blueberry, that blueberry and that vitamin E capsule has anything to do with anything. I think vitamin E, of course, now we have some randomized control trial data. We have SELECT, et cetera, and I think we know it probably doesn't do anything, um, you know. Um, but for some questions, we don't have any randomized data. And we, we just don't know the answer. Cheap. Um, people always say it's very expensive to do a randomized study. And in fact, in the current environment in the United States, that's true. But there are some randomized studies that are done for real cheap. For one example is the TASTE randomized trial, which is a randomized trial of 6,000 people in the Netherlands who had their thrombus, at the time of MI, mechanically aspirated or not. And they did taste for $50 per person randomized administrative fee because they built the randomization into the EMR. So that's the cheap end. 50 bucks per participant, I've never heard it any cheaper. But I've heard my colleagues in oncology say that it costs $20,000 to randomize someone or even $50,000 to randomize someone. I say, that's a lot of dinners you got to pay. For. I mean, that's a lot of administrative fees you got to pay. Administrative fees, of course, you got administrative fees, not... Not, any, not, not, not anything other than administrative fees. Uh, but let's say 50000 Okay, if it's $50,000 to randomize somebody, there's got to be some break-even point where it's cheaper to randomize than to do observational study. And here's why. When you do an observational study of what people got in the real world, oftentimes you have to give it to a lot more people before you do the study. You debut the product, you let people use it, and then a year later you'd study it. Whereas in a randomized study, you have a power calculation that says, we're going to randomize 1,000 people, 500 will get the drug. But if you just debuted the drug, maybe not 500 people get it, maybe 5,000 people or 50,000 people, you know? Like Paxlovid and vaccinated healthy people. Maybe, maybe 100,000 people get the drug, and then you study it. So you have to pay the cost of the drug, that's like 500 bucks, versus the number of people who got it, et cetera. And a cancer drug, you know, you have to pay the cost of the drug versus all the people who got it. And so in this paper, we do a calculation where we say, here's, you assume the cost per participant and I'll tell you below what price it's actually cheaper to randomize and if it's $50,000 to randomize someone it's cheaper to do a randomized study if the drug costs more than $8,000 per course and actually turns out the average cancer drug costs $200,000 per year so we are basically as long as it's less than a million dollars to randomize per person it is cheaper to study cancer drugs in randomized fashion than observational fashion and I actually think $50,000 and $20,000 is not the true figure I think it's something in between. I think the vast majority of healthcare interventions it is cheaper for the whole system to randomize than to do the observational study because we, you use fewer participants and you can read the paper for the precise like why why do I how did I get that ratio and these numbers you can see, you can look up the paper. I won't bore you with all this this math that I had forgotten. I had to find someone who knew that. Now what about fast and few? I just want to make one allusion. You know. Um, there is a question in biomedicine that plagued us for a long time, which is that for a woman who has breast cancer that's metastatic, it's left the breast and gone to the spine or the liver, do they still have a survival benefit from removal of the breast? And you might think that that's a silly question. In fact, that's what I thought when the first time I heard it. I thought it was silly. Of course, it's not possible that removing the breast could have a benefit when the horse has left the barn, but many people thought it did, and they you know, had a hand-wavy cytokines. Cytokines from there could go do it. Cytokines can apparently do lots of things. I don't know. Maybe a cytokine did it. But this was a question that plagued people for a long time. Finally, in the last decade, the good folks at Tata Memorial Hospital in Mumbai, India, answered the question. They took 350 women, and they randomized them to surgery or no surgery, and they found the overall survival curves are superimposable. There's no benefit. But before we did this study that finally put the nail in the coffin of this practice, observational studies had probed the same question. And there were at least 28,000 women in those observational studies and 15,000 received the surgery or 85 times as many women over a period of 35 years. So what I mean here is if this actually saved lives, then there's 13,000 women who didn't get it over 35 years and you wasted time. You could have had a faster answer and, and helped those 13,000 women. But this turned out not to save lives And so you've wrongfully subjected 15,000 women to the harms of surgery, and those are only the women included in the studies. The studies don't capture the whole world. There's probably many, many more. So 85 times as many women were exposed to an ultimately harmful practice as if you had just done the randomized trial at the outset. And it took one-third the time, even though it took a decade to accrue. Imagine how much faster and fewer participants would be exposed to something if they do so in the careful confines of clinical trials. Okay, next part. You know, what about those extreme effects? And I'll give you an example of something that I actually think is a parachute, but they really are few and far between in biomedicine. This is a famous paper, 2004, BMJ, Gordon Smith, Jill Pell, two OB/GYN doctors, and here's what they say. They say, listen, there's a lot of you people out there that keep saying, randomize, randomize, randomize. You bore me. Let's, let's, let's put you to the test. We looked up randomized controlled trials for parachutes when you fall out of an airplane, and here's what we found. We found zero studies. So by your own logic, you don't know if they work. You don't know if they work. And so then they conclude their paper in the BMJ, quote, we think everyone might benefit if the most radical protagonist of evidence-based medicine, that's me, organized and participate in a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled crossover trial of the parachute. You know, what I always thought was um, salt in the wound was it had to be crossover, you know? There's really, there's no getting out of this study. There's no, there's no lucky breaks. It had to be a crossover trial. Okay, fine. It was funny. Even I find it funny. But, um, but is it relevant for medicine? You know, I talked about that end of the spectrum and I'm gonna show you some data, I think, I mean, I could show you, uh, I, I hope that those slides will come in the next few slides that actually almost nothing we do in medicine has a 99.993% effect size on mortality in the short term, almost nothing. I would say opening up a vessel for somebody with STEMI, you're talking about 20 percentage points, ARR, over a 30-day mortality. That's huge, that's amazing. It's amazing those heart doctors know how to go do that but it's not 99. It's not 99. Um, In fact, it's very hard to think of things that are 99% on mortality. But let's talk about biomedicine. You know, we're not in the parachute business. We gotta be honest what business we're in. We're in the hydrochlorothiazide business. We're in the glipizide business. We're in the metformin business. We're in the empagliflozin business. We're in the ibrutinib business. We're in the business of modest to marginal effect sizes. We're in the business of 2% risk of stroke going to 1.7% risk of stroke. We're in the business of 7% risk of cardiovascular events going to 4.2% risk of cardiovascular That's the business we're in. That's not so bad to be in. In human history, people have rarely been in the business of generally being a net positive. We're in the positive business. The body is complicated. If it was so simple in things like hypertension and diabetes to perturb one pathway just one little bit and then it's like a light switch, well, we might have evolved for that. It might have been a selection pressure for that, but it's not so simple. And so we need to be humble and recognize most of biomedicine is modest to marginal effect sizes. And that's important for evidence because that's the RCT zone. See, the reason smoking, to say you believe smoking is harmful, it never had an RCT, ergo I don't need to do an RCT of impella or balloon pump or, or, or a new blood pressure medicine, pistolic, that's an erroneous argument because we don't do RCTs to proscribe harmful therapies. We don't do RCTs of shooting you in the chest or putting benzene in your drinking water. We do risk factor epidemiology to mitigate harms. We do RCTs to offer putative benefits. We do RCTs for things we think will make you better off. And the reason RCTs are so much better, I think, than observational studies for these things that offer putative benefit is these are interventions where our bias, our optimism, our profiteering may result in an incorrect assessment of the effect and only carefully done RCTs can clarify if it is reliable, if it actually does what you think it does. And I'll give you a good example. When I was starting in medicine, there were a lot of people with high blood pressure and those people were taking many antihypertensive drugs and some of them were older people who, if you would cat them, you would find that renal artery was all clogged up. They have high blood pressure, and that renal artery is clogged up. And I remember vaguely from medical school, and uh, Dr. Poe, Poe is going to kill me. But I remember vaguely, but not so good, that if the kidney doesn't enough, get enough blood, it makes something called renin, renin. And that's converted to angiotensin 1 and then there's AT2, and then there's an ACE in there somewhere, and then that uh, AT2 has something to do with TGF-beta, and that has something to do with badness. And so the kidney's important for blood pressure. That's pretty much the gist of what I remember. And if the kidney's not getting enough blood flow, and you have high blood pressure, I think it makes a load of sense that we're going to remedy that. We're going to go in there and open that blood vessel. We're going to rely on that pathophysiologic reasoning, and even perhaps anecdotal impressions of great outcomes to go in there and stent it. And so somebody might say that that's good enough. We could do an observational study and we'll find out, of course, people who to and think they do better than those that didn't, they have fewer blood pressure pills, of course, but there may be confounding that you, if you're looking at a couple of people who are older and frailer, you might pick the one who looked best to you if, to take them to the cat lab. I don't know. Um, there's some reliability issue there. We did this, Medicare paid for it, it was $1 billion a year, we we're paying year after year after year after year. Finally, they ran Astral and Coral, and here's what they found. When you randomize people... To medical therapy or medical therapy plus revascularization for renal artery stenosis and high blood pressure, there's no difference in time to renal events. There's no difference in time to cardiovascular events in multiple studies. There is a difference in blood pressure pill taking, but it's very, very modest. It's like 2.3 versus 3.2, some very modest. So this was a billion dollar a year Medicare industry that largely, I think, done work, than not do what you think it did. The cardiologists always tell me, well, there's a person in there you know, high blood pressure, renal arteriosis flash flood, pulmonary edema, that person would benefit. And I say, sure. I, I, whenever a negative study comes out in biomedicine, that doesn't mean the therapy can never work under any circumstance, but it does mean that you, the person who's getting billions of dollars from this, have an obligation to prove to me, the payer, that it's worth me paying for it. So who are those people? Pre-specify them. Run a study in that population. This ties into some work we've done on medical reversals or things that we did for years, for decades. We all thought helped. Turned out they didn't and we've analyzed this and, and here's one way we analyzed it and then i'll come back to parachutes and, and then i'll wrap up um you know we wanted to know of medical practices that we were doing day in and day out for which we didn't have robust evidence if you took those practices and subjected them to rigorous clinical appraisal how often do they succeed and how often do they fail and here's how we did it we took all the articles that appeared in the new England journal of medicine in a decade 2044 articles and they were read in duplicate by two researchers. And that's why God invented medical students to do the kind of important, hard-hitting work. Actually, no, it's actually, but it's actually a great project because you read the best studies. Um, we found two-thirds of them concerned in medical practice, like taking a pill, getting a stent, doing a surgery, and one-third didn't. If you tested a novel medical practice, oh, sorry, and of the ones that tested a medical practice, three-quarters were new. Is rivaroxaban better than Coumadin? Is ibrutinib better than chlorambucil? Is my new drug... Uh, better than my old drug and if you test something new and you're published in the New England Journal of Medicine I can tell you what the answer is you found a you found a winner 77 percent of the time you found the new practice was beneficial only 17 percent of the time did you say it's back to the drawing board now why are studies in the New England Journal studying novel practices so positive the answer is they care about their impact factor and nobody's gonna cite a paper that doesn't change standard of care, but we are gonna cite papers that do, and so they prefer those. So this is what we call publication bias, or selective reporting bias, and it does plague the New England Journal. But we also found something interesting. We found a quarter of the practices tested something we were already doing. Rapid response teams, that's merit. Uh, Gown and glove precautions for ICU patients who test positive for MRSA, that's star ICU and bug, with two Gs. Early goal-directed therapy, Manny Rivers thing. Tight glycemic control in the ICU, um, uh, fleckinide. Flecanide, the uh, class 1c antiarrhythmic for um, uh, po- post-MI. One quarter of these tested something we were already doing. And if you test something, we're already doing and If you're in the New England Journal of Medicine, it was a split. 38% of the time you validated what we were doing. Yes, you should have given that antibiotic, but 40% of the time you found what we were doing was no better or worse than a prior or lesser standard of care. We call that a reversal. And the literature suggests that when you take established medical practices that were often developed based on... Um, you know, quasi-experimental, observational, um, before and after, historically controlled, uncontrolled studies, and then you subject it to randomization, rigorous study, don't be surprised if you get a 50-50 split. These aren't just random practices. These are all practices that we were doing for decades, often accruing billions or tens of billions of dollars in payments, and they turned out to be no better or worse than a prior or lesser standard of care. I think to some degree it's an indictment of medicine. But for many years in my career, I was optimistic that we were doing better because we were holding novel practices to more rigorous standards upon entry. But lately, I, think that I don't think that's true anymore. I think when we are afraid, when we are scared, when we feel the need to act first and think later, we're much more likely to embrace therapies based on very, very low and circumstantial levels of evidence. And then we're setting up the conditions for reversal. I think over the last five years, on many topics from ed- educanumab to a number of things that are pandemic related, we are setting up the preconditions that many, many things that we have done with good faith and that we think were beneficial will turn out to blow up in our face. And that will mean a lot of payments that were unnecessary and, and perhaps even some suffering that was unnecessary. I'm going to skip this. I'll just make my last point, you know, why is, and so this is what I was saying, right as reversal happen. Um, I just i just hit this you know one more time like why does reversal happen the real core of it is we adopted something based on inadequate or biased studies either it's pathophysiology alone it's pathophysiology plus anecdotal evidence we call that genomic medicine genomic medicine is often in that bucket epidemiology evidence like that nutritional study historical controls those are always upwardly biased we've known that since 82 a paper by sackett a paper by uh, sorry henry sachs Randomized trials, just being randomized doesn't mean you're good, you know, they often use patients that are not representative of our practices, inappropriate dosing, you're only looking at one hospital with a charismatic doctor, but it doesn't extrapolate to other hospitals where people aren't as charismatic, all these other problems. And I always say meta-analysis, people always say to me, well, the meta-analysis said that this was good. I say meta-analysis is like a juicer, it only tastes as good as what you put in the juicer, and you're putting a lot of rotten vegetables in that juicer, I think. You're often putting a lot of rotten vegetables, so. Back to the parachute. Do we have effect sizes like this in biomedicine? I think recently, maybe we did. Boy, maybe we did. Oh, uh, I'll skip that. That's a. I'll come back if we have time. Concealment bias is a very fun bias. For years, I looked for to find an example of that bias. I finally found that bias, and um, but I will make my point about, yes, parachutes. Now, you heard about this in the New York Times they finally took a break from the blueberry beat, and they got right on to PD-1 blockade. Oh, uh, nothing. Nothing in the chat. This was the study you read about. Magic cancer drug cures rectal cancer patients, and every oncologist's phone started blowing up. You know, will I benefit from this? And, I, and we had to say, easy. This is a very unique subset. So this is the drug you hear about all the time, the uh, nivolumab or pembrolizumab. It's the first cancer drugs that I was once watching a football game and it said, Ask your doctor if you have non small cell lung cancer with a PDL1 stain over 50%. I said, My God, you know, you know the drug has to make a lot of money if you can take an ad out on nighttime television asking your doctor about non small cell lung cancer, adenocarcinoma, PDL1 of 75%. I mean, I think it's got to make enough money to cover that ad and that's got to be a lot of money. So, this is the drugs. They unleash the immune system, so I'm told. And there is something called mismatch repair deficient local rectal cancer. That's rectal cancer that's just in the rectum or the lymph nodes near it. And these are people who 50% have the Lynch syndrome or HNPCC syndrome, but 50% have a sporadic or de novo mismatch repair deficient gene mutation. And they're a very unique cohort, maybe 5 to 10% of local rectal cancer patients. And before this study, the standard of care was barbarism It was a barbaric standard of care and I really didn't relish giving it. It was, you know, what they call total neoadjuvant therapy or neoadjuvant therapy or adjuvant therapy. It was basically chemotherapy, radiation therapy. Those two things don't pair so nicely often when you're pointing it at the rectum, followed by course after course of chemotherapy. And the goal was to cure you, That's no doubt about it, but it wasn't always fun to go get it. And I certainly wouldn't uh, relish the opportunity to get chemo-RT to my rectum. Side effects may include rectal bleeding or uh, all sorts of problems. And then after all that, if you make it through all that, you have the pleasure of having a, the whole thing resected. And so then you may have a temporary ostomy or you may have a, you know the pleasure of all that treatment is a surgical resection. I think this is a suboptimal treatment. What do you get for all that? The yellow curve here is the DDMMR. this is the Kaplan-Meier curve. You know, it's not a terrible outcome that you get. Some people are cured. I mean, I think there's a fraction of people cured. The DDMMR cohort that's cured, I don't know. It's like 60, 70, 80% in that ballpark. It's not nothing. And so, lo and behold, comes the new drug. The new drug is called Dostarlimab. And it unleashes the immune system. But it does go down really, really smooth. It has very few side effects. It goes down silky smooth. It's nothing like chemo RT to the rectum. And in this study, they took a bunch of people. Actually, they took like 14 or 12, not too many. And they gave them Dostarlimab for nine doses. Then they looked in there and they did a PET scan. And if you had any residual disease, then you have to get that big treatment that uh you know nobody wants um, but if you don't you get to keep getting followed and here's what happened this is why it's so remarkable everybody's tumor melted away by suv on pet everybody's symptoms got wet better they vanished entirely everybody had a response and every single person continues to have a response not a single person has had a relapse it is 100 percent, 100 percent nothing and this is what oh i'm sorry i should have said to so if you're eating to look away This is apparently what my GI colleagues see. Never seen it. But this is uh, rectal cancer on endoscopy. It totally melted away with this drug. The MRI looks better. The FDG PET looks better. I mean, this is really remarkable. And it's 100%. I mean, it's 12 people, but it's one. But you're saying it's it's 100%. It's 100%. And the side effect profile of this is nothing like RT. It goes down so, so smooth. So, so smooth. It looks pretty good. So I'm saying I'm willing to call this a parachute. It's not a parachute for mortality, actually, because as I said... And as people have proven, very, very few things have that high reduction in all-cause mortality. But it is a parachute for one thing, which is there was a 100% chance you were going to get chemo RT. Now there's a 0% chance you're going to get chemo RT by taking this drug. And I would say in this analogy, the ground is chemo RT. So it's kind of like a, it's almost like a parachute. Or is it like a parachute question? Ah, And so we are working on drafting this, but we have a proposal for a new study design for something that looks this good. It's called the is-it-still-a-parachute trial. We randomize people to dostarlimab, but we'll also do nivolumab or pembro because I see no reason why those will be different. Coke, Pepsi, you know, I see no reason. And we will keep randomizing to this. And if any arm has 10% of people whose tumor doesn't go away entirely or his tumor relapse, that arm is closed. So maybe this will close first and this will close and this will continue. And if all arms have 10% relapse, then we've reentered equipoise, in my opinion, and we can... Automatically randomized to chemo RT, which was the existing standard of care versus the last arm to fall, primary endpoint overall survival. So what I want to say is that, yes, it is possible some things are parachutes. This is maybe the best example I've seen in recent years. And if it is a parachute, it doesn't mean it should never be tested. It should be tested in a way that we have some parameter by which we lose equipoise. If you actually start doing this and it turns out to be the true answer is 60% or 40%, then you really do enter equipoise. Was that chemo RT maybe even better after all? Is it possible? Of course it's possible. With Growing sample size, you can get a different effect size. There is a phenomenon called regression mean, and there is a phenomenon uh, where very, very sexy findings get a lot of notice. And this, you know, it has a 12 out of 12 very, very provocative finding. It's got all the media coverage in the world. Will it replicate? Will it hold up? I think this study design balances um, the desire not to get chemo RT with uh, a method to preserve equipoise and run the study if we need to. Okay, I'm going to stop there and take questions um, because I don't want to uh, drone on. Um, what were the goals of this talk? I think the goals is really this axis. And I think this axis will help you think about medicine. The axis basically says, yes, there are things that have huge effect sizes. No, we don't need any study for that. You don't need a study to show, don't shoot me, please don't shoot me. And you don't need a study to show, give me the parachute. Okay, I concede, those are great. Um, smoking was a unique it was really unique. was ratio 20 for lung cancer, and and the, and the Bradford Hill studies, and, and all the parts of the Bradford Hill criteria. Very unique. Eating bacon is more kind of representative, and and the, in the middle, I think it's very very murky. And then what we do in biomedicine, we're in the modest to marginal effect size business, and that's why. And we're also in the benefit somebody business. We're not in the harm the business, and that's why I think for so much of what we do, randomization is the thing that separates uh, the wheat from the chaff. So thank you so much for your time, and I'm happy to take questions. Oh, thank you. That's a that's a really great and profound question. And that's a question that like, you know, um, anyone listening, you should always ask like many attendings their view on this topic, because I think it's the kind of thing that different people have different thoughts, and they'll all have maybe some kernel in it that um, is of value. I guess I'll just say like in my line of work, I'll just tell you how I just very briefly how I think about it. Uh, my first principle is that you know my goal is not that all of my patients would do what I would do if I had that issue. My goal is helping them facilitate what they would want to do with their values and goals. But knowing, hopefully, knowing what I know about the true risks and benefits, so the, I think I view my role as a facilitator. And uh, often people do what I wouldn't do for myself. Um, I also think about two hats. One, a lot of what I talk about is the regulatory hat, like what should the FDA permit people to do and what should be the threshold, what should payers pay for, but when I put my clinician hat on, it's different. It's that you know the world is the way the world is. These are the options. I have to explain as best I can, even if I disagree that some of them shouldn't have been approved, I have to explain as best I can. I always say my first visit with a cancer patient, I only want to get one thing clear. Is the goal curative intent like a Hodgkin's lymphoma? Is the goal extend survival like a colon cancer? Or is the goal merely to improve symptoms uh, like those scenarios arise? And I have no other purpose for the first visit. I think that's a very hard thing to get clear to somebody. I let the whole visit be about that. The next visit, I often schedule a second visit very quick because I think people need a little time to digest that and think about their questions. And then when I present the next visit, I often present treatment and the options and the pros and cons. And I often end up in cancer medicine basically saying like, I don't know this makes you live longer better. I do know it makes the tumor less likely to grow on a scan and all these sorts of surrogates. But when I do know, um, for some drugs, I do know, I like to give ranges. I like to say, if you don't do the treatment, I like to give the 20th and 80th percentile of how you'll do and if you do do the treatment, the 20th and 80th. I don't like to give the first and 99th because I think human beings anchor to extremes and we often make irrational choices. And I also don't like to give the median because I feel like no, no single person is the median and half your patients in your practice will be disappointed and the other half will be angry with you for short you know, shrifting them. And so I like to give the range 80 to 20. Um, and, I, and, then, and of course, how do I do that? My fellow was asking me yesterday. Um, I, I look at the clinical trials to get the range. But in cancer, I discount them by the fact that clinical trials are like enrolling people with cancer who are also Olympians. And I discount it for the fact that people with cancer are real people. They have other medical problems. And so those things usually all get smaller. And so I kind of do that calculation. And um, I have had many times, um, you know, obviously the other thing about it is, and you'll know this well, which is like people are different. And I've had, you know, some people. Oh, you basically say you only have to come here six times and drive here and get the treatment and you have like a really great curate and I say, you know what, doc, it's a long drive, I don't want to come. And I'm like, oh my god, it's not that long. You know, sir, It's not that long. Um, but then other people who say, you know, there's like a, you know, no survival benefit, there's a slight improvement in like this surrogate blood marker that nobody knows what it means and the drug costs a million dollars and the side effects profile, including demyelination and death. And they say, well, I want to try it, you know? And so we all have, you know, the range of, uh, of views. And so I think often that carries more than, you know, the specifics. I just hope that, my patients feel like I told them the honest truth about the products.